Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're pleased to welcome in uh, uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi uh, to the program today. He was on the USU campus recently to uh, give a presentation uh, brought in by the USU Access and Diversity Center. And uh, his second book, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, has gotten a lot of buzz. In fact, it won the 2016 National Book Award for Nonfiction. And at 34 years old, uh, Dr. Kendi is the youngest ever winner of the National Book Award for uh, Nonfiction. Um, so congratulations. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, here's a bit of the blurb for the for the book. Uh, Some Americans cling desperately to the myth that we're living in a post-racial society, that the election of the first black president spelled the doom of racism. In fact, racist thought is alive and well in America, more sophisticated and more insidious than ever. And as award-winning historian Ibram Kendi argues in Stamp from the beginning, if we have any hope of grappling with this stark reality, we must first understand how racist ideas were developed, disseminated, and enshrined in American society. So uh, b- before I even uh, picked up your book, uh, Dr. Kendi, I, I had this question, how, how will this hope, Dr. Kendi, is going to relate this, connect this to this extraordinary moment we're living in, the, mm-hmm. the uh, election of uh, Donald Trump? which shocked many people, as you, as you write um, in your preface. And indeed, in your preface, you do make that connection. So mm-hmm. I wonder if we could, uh, we could start there. Uh, the, you say in your preface that uh, th- this election left many Americans in shock, and neither of the two popular sort of racial narratives that we have explained it. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe talk about those two racial narratives and, uh, and why they, in brief, don't explain the, the election of Trump and everything that's happened. Sure. And, you know, again, thank you for having me on the show. And, and I think the, the, the two major racial narratives that really allow people to understand America's racial history, the first is this sort of arrival narrative, uh, that the nation has moved past uh, racism, that it's moved into a post-racial society, a ra- post-racial society where racism doesn't exist, where white supremacists do not exist, where their their president is not going to be elected uh, into the White House. And so I think for many people, that narrative was uh, and has continued to be disrupted. Uh, the other racial narrative, which I think is possibly more popular, is this racial progress narrative, this, this narrative that over the course of American history, the, the nation has continuously made steady forward uh, racial progress as it relates to race, and 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 the election of of Barack Obama sort of demonstrated that. Almost he almost personified that racial progress, and people expected the progress to only continue. And when it hit up against the wall that was Donald Trump, uh, they began to realize that that progress was not continuing and not inevitable. Hmm. You talk about a dueling duality, and and then it's. Um you know, it's kind of kind of depressing to to see that, but it but as as I read your book and 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 thought about it, I thought that's you know it, it is true that this dueling duality that that uh, every time there's uh, progress you know, with uh, you know anti-racists progress, then racist progress as well. Yeah, and you know I did not necessarily know this dual history of 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 race in America before I started researching this book, but but I was trying to sort of understand. Uh, how could we simultaneously have 
the first black president, which is when I sort of started writing the book, as well as an unprecedented number of black people in prison simultaneously? Or how is it that we have all of these very prominent uh, black people and even uh, wealthy black people uh, while simultaneously having black people being killed unarmed uh, by the police? Like, how is both of these things happening? And I, and I found that what we've actually had has been a dual history of racial progress, continuous racial progress, the racial progress that we know, the racial progress we're continuously taught. But what we're not necessarily taught is that the United States has also experienced what I call racist progress. In other words, racist policies and even racist ideas have progressed, have become even more sophisticated over the course of of American history. And and what I mean by sophisticated is they have continuously become hidden from public view, uh, which then allows them to continue uh, because Americans are not resisting them. Mm. How do you define racism? Sure. So I think we, we should understand that racism is the interaction between racist policies and racist ideas. And and so we in order to understand racism or the marriage of of, of racist policies and racist ideas, we have to understand racist policies and, and racist ideas. I define a racist policy as any policy that yields an unequal outcome between racial groups. And I define a racist idea as any idea that suggests a racial group is superior or inferior to another racial group in any way. And the way racist policies interact with racist ideas is when these policies, these racist policies, yield these racially unequal outcome, racist policies are produced to justify that unequal outcome so we won't see that policy and instead we'll see a particular racial group as the problem. Mm. And, and you, you've hit upon, I want to, uh, to take that up in just about a minute, a, a very interesting idea. Uh, we've, ha- we've had it backwards all these years. But first of all, uh, uh, racial disparities, these, these outcomes, um, and you list some of these uh, in the book. And I, I think, uh, you know, thinking people, uh, this is undeniable. Young black males, 21 times more likely to be killed by police than their white counterparts. This is between 2010 and 2012. Um, and um, let's see, federal data show the median wealth of white households is 13 times the median wealth of black households. Just a couple of data points. Um, So let me, let's, uh, by the way, you said um, in the process of writing this book, you uh, looked back and you you felt like you held some racist ideas. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Well, yeah, I mean, once I defined a racist idea, uh, you know, and, and once I realized the principal, principal mission of racist ideas, basically the effect of racist ideas, and, 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 and once I found that that effect, that mission has historically been to suppress resistance to racial discrimination. Because what happens is if you have racial disparities, there are only two causes. That there are only two causes as to why that racial disparity exists. Either there's something wrong with a racial group, either there's something wrong with black people, either the reason why white people have 13 times more wealth than black people is because black people are not saving their money, because black people 
do not know how to take care of their money because something is wrong or inferior about black people or discrimination. Uh, The same thing with the disparity between uh, police violence. You know, either it's the case that young black males are 21 times more likely to be reckless with the police or it's something wrong with the police. It's something wrong with societal policies. And and so when you believe that there's something wrong with black people, you simultaneously don't see racial discrimination. And and so I think black people, too, and I, I realized that myself, you know, I had uh, consumed racist ideas suggesting that the problem of inequality was the problem of black people, which prevented me from seeing that actually it was racial discrimination. Mm. As you write there, and, and you call it a folktale, you say, I was taught the popular folktale of racism. And that this idea, as I read this, I, I thought, well, that's that's what I've thought, too, right? <laughs> that uh, ignorant and hateful people produce racist ideas, that these racist people institute then racist policies. But you're, you're, you're saying it's we've got it backwards. Yes. And, and I think it's, it's quite complex, but I think the easiest way for us to understand it is we need we should distinguish between the producers of racist ideas and the consumers. So not the people who are reading the book, but the people who are writing the book that millions of people read, the people who are making the films that millions of people watch, the, the people who are writing the columns that millions of people read. These producers of, of these ideas are the people that I studied. Uh, and I distinguished them very clearly from the consumers. And I, I simply asked the question, why were they producing these ideas? Why did John C. Calhoun in 1837 stand up before his colleagues in the U.S. Senate and say slavery is a positive good? It's a positive good for black people. It's a positive good for America. You know, why did after the election of Barack Obama, uh, certain forces state that the nation is now post-racial? You know, why did these things happen? And I found that these people who were producing these ideas were actually quite brilliant. Uh, when, when you read Stamp from the Beginning, you're, you're going to read the creme de la creme you know, of American intellectualism. Uh, you also find people who had relationships with black people, uh, sexual or even romantic relationships with black people, people who uh, consider themselves to be very well-meaning, consider themselves to be friends of, of black people who were producing uh, these ideas. So I, I found that it wasn't ignorance or hate. I found that what was actually happening was you had racial inequities and then you had discriminatory policies that were causing those inequities. And the people who were producing these ideas were typically producing these ideas to defend existing racist policies, to normalize those racial inequities, to say that black people were to blame for those inequities uh, as opposed to discrimination. And typically the reason why people produce these ideas is because those those policies benefited them. It benefited people to enslave black people, and they wanted to continue to enslave black people, and they didn't want people resisting that enslavement. So they tried to convince black people and, and, and white people and Americans that these people should be enslaved because they're black. Uh, it benefited uh, southern landowners to 
it, it benefited Southern landowners that black people, black workers, black farmers uh, were were poor and even disenfranchised because it, it kept their labor cheap. And so they created these ideas that these people should be be tilling the land as opposed to running for Congress because it benefited them. And so that's that's what I sort of show that racist policies and the need to justify them actually have led to the production of racist ideas. And then those racist ideas have been circulated and then we consume them unknowingly and then became ignorant and hateful. Um, here's a uh, significant statement uh, from the book. You say the principal function of racist ideas in American history has been the suppression of resistance to racial discrimination and its re- resulting racial uh, disparities. So intentional um, to to keep the system in place, right, and and to suppress dissent. Precisely. You know, because I, I think it, it makes sense in our time. You know, we've been arguing for years over why is it that so many black people are being killed by police. And there's either a problem with the criminal justice system or there's a problem with black people. And so those people who benefit from the criminal justice system, those 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 people who benefit from those the policies, those people who benefit from the mass incarceration of black people, those people who benefit from this idea the way we reduce violent crime is through more cops and more judges and more prosecutors and more uh, prison beds. The people who benefit from the status quo of the criminal justice system, of course, they're going to make us believe that, no, they're not the problem, that that black people are the problem. So they can continue to benefit from those policies that actually cause uh, us to uh, continue to mass incarcerate and even kill black people. So uh, I guess a big purpose of the book is to examine these racist ideas. Uh, To to what end? What what do you want people to take away from the well, I first, this trip. I first wanted people to read the entire history of racist ideas. And so Stamp from the Beginning really lays out the entire history from their origins to the present. I wanted people to see the ways in which these racist ideas have impacted American history and the way American history has impacted these ideas. But I, I also wanted people to realize that most of the people reading this book are going to be consumers. And, and I want people to really think through the ideas that they have consumed over their lifetime and, and the way in which people produce those ideas because they wanted the, us, they wanted us to see people as the problem as opposed to policies. And, and when we start seeing people as the problem, that leads to divisions. And when we start having divisions in, you know, in, our, in our communities, that leads to many of the problems we're having in our society and, and problems that certain people benefit from, but most of us don't benefit from. And so I'm hoping that people will be able to see, just like I saw through researching for this book, the ways in which they have been manipulated by racist ideas. Hmm. You write, and, and, and this one would hope is self-evident and that uh, everyone accepted this, but, uh, but I can understand why you, why you write this. You say, <laughs> under our different-looking hair and skin, doctors cannot tell the difference between our bodies, our brains, and the blood that runs through our veins. Um, you know, the concept of race is is much more idea-driven, right, and culture and uh, political system and economics. Yeah, so we, of course, many of us, many Americans uh, still believe uh, 
that race is a biological construct. In other words, that there's a such thing as white genes or black genes or black diseases or white diseases or, or white blood or black blood um, or that the white race is this biological entity that is suddenly under attack um, by these, quote, non, non-white biological entities, which is why white people need to keep their race pure. Like all of these ideas uh, are widely held, even though they have widely been disputed. Uh, and in 2000, uh, scientists finally uncovered the entire human genome and they found that the racial groups, that the races are actually 99% the same. And in fact, there's more genetic diversity within Africa than between Africa and let's say Europe. And the way that operates is, Western Africans, to give an example, uh, are more genetically the same than Western Europeans than they are East Africans. But, you know, that's the fact. That's science. And so this idea that because the color of someone's skin or the texture of someone's hair is different, that they somehow are genetically or biologically different has is is scientifically just not true. And, And it's indisputable. Let's take a brief break. When we come back, we have more <clears throat> with uh, Ibram Kendi. He is a winner of the National Book Award from 2016 for his uh, book, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. And uh, he was uh, brought to USU recently by the USU Access and Diversity Center for a presentation. We're pleased to have him with us. Uh, uh, when we come back, I want to uh, talk about uh, this idea in Dr. Kendi's book. Uh, he says... There have not been two sides to this argument. There have been three sides. I want to talk a bit about that. More following this break. We're back with Ibram Kendi. He is author of a National Book Award winner, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. And he was on the USU campus recently uh, to give a presentation uh, sponsored by the USU Access and Diversity Center. Um, And uh, we're talking... uh, uh, on tape this uh, part of the program and you can get a comment to, through to us uh, at upraxis at gmail.com but uh, no phone calls in in this uh, hour uh dr kendi i mentioned before the break uh, i want to get into this y- you say that uh, you as you did this whole sweep of history mm-hmm. from cotton mather and and before to uh down to the, the last of your tour guides you call them is, is angela davis mm-hmm. and we'll get into uh, some of that history um, you say historically there have been three sides to this heated argument: segregationists, anti-racists, and assimilationists. What if you take us briefly through those three groups? Sure. So I think one of the ways we can understand it is Jefferson's idea that all men are created equal, um, and and he was challenging an idea that was actually quite popular at the time that all men are not created equal. So this concept that more specifically, the racial groups are genetically and biologically distinct and that black people in particular are not only, because they're genetically and biologically distinct, uh, they are permanently inferior. Um, And that black people are inferior by nature is what I call segregationist ideas. And so, therefore, because black people are inferior by nature, racial inequality is permanent. Uh, 
Uh, and so this is the idea of segregationists that I chronicled in the book. The On the other side of the debate, and, and I say debate because really since the beginning of this country, we've been trying to de- understand why racial inequality exists you know, throughout this nation's history. And segregationist state, it's because black people are by nature inferior, and so inequality is permanent. Well, anti-racist, I'm sorry, assimilationist, which is what I argue a second kind of racist idea, have stated that, no, the racial groups are created equal. Uh, the racial groups are biologically equal. But black people became inferior, Uh, So, yes, they are biologically equal, but they're culturally or behaviorally inferior. Black people are not inferior by nature, assimilationists would say. Black people are inferior by nurture. And so because because they are inferior by nurture, we have the capacity to civilize and develop them. Um, And segregationists have said, no, you can't civilize and develop them because they're inferior by nature. They're biologically inferior. And so that has long been a debate within racist thought. Can black people be civilized? Uh, the, so the, 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 the idea that they shared was that black people are inferior. The idea that they diverged on was whether black people can be basically be made equal to white people one day. Hmm. Uh, anti-racist have have disputed both a segregationist and assimilationist ideas and have stated that black people are not only equal biologically, but even though they may have cultural, even phenotypic differences, uh, we should not see difference as being inferior. Uh, And they've stated that that not only are the racial groups created equal, but that they are equal. And because the racial groups are equal, Racial inequities in our society, anti-racists say, must be the result of racial discrimination. Hmm. I wonder, um, I want to get back into some of this history. It's fascinating history. You did a broad sweep of uh, a very wide scope um, of uh, racist ideas in America. I want to bring this forward, a little bit of a discussion to today. Okay. Um, and you, you write, uh, if the purpose of, um, rather, the, the post-racial attacks triggered counterattacks from anti-racists, pointing out the racial discrimination from Twitter to Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which then triggered counterattacks from post-racialists who called these anti-racists divisive and racist. You're giving some of the, the current uh, uh, recent history, which we're all familiar with. Assimilationists stuck in the middle considered the drumbeat of ill-conceived allegory of how far the nation had come and how far it still had to go, considered themselves sort of moderate, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the middle. Yes. Uh, and that's sort of uh, sort of uh, where we are. So this this picking up this idea of post a uh, post racial America. This mm-hmm. is, this has been an idea that's been taken up and by by the right wing, especially yes, um, who 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 grew impatient with that we're still having this debate. I guess in in one in one respect. Well, I think in order for any American to claim that the nation that this nation with all of these racial inequities in literally every sector of society, from wealth to health to incarceration to education, there are all of these racial inequalities all all around us. In order for an American to claim that the nation is post-racial, which means that racial discrimination does not exist, 
in order for them to make that claim, they have to say that all of these inequities exist because of black inferiority. Because again, again, there's only two causes of racial inequities. Either there's something wrong with black people or there's racial discrimination. So when you say racial discrimination does not exist or is a trivial um, is trivial in American society and you have a society of racial disparities all around you, what you're simultaneously saying is that the cause of those disparities are black inferiority. And, and, and really every racist idea in history has been like a post-racial idea. It's caused people to not look for, let alone see, racial discrimination. It's caused them to think that the problem is black people. Mm. Now, you write a bit about uh, uh, President Obama, and uh, early in his administration, we had this uh, incident um, where uh, um, Henry Louis Gates, um, Harvard professor, was locked out of his house trying to get in. The police arrest him. Um, President Obama makes a comment, fairly, you know, fairly moderate comment, not not wild-eyed, um, and those who you might consider post-racialist really push back hard on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because what, what post-racialists say is that racial discrimination doesn't exist. And so and, and so we should not be talking about race. And so when someone like President Obama or anyone else says racial discrimination exists, they say, no, you're the problem because you're talking about something that is not even a problem. Uh, and in fact... You're talking about racial discrimination. Barack Obama was talking about racial discrimination because he hates white people. Like that was the idea. And so the the assumption then from post-racialists is that if you challenge racial discrimination, then that must mean you don't like white people. It's the same sort of argument that people are making that have been people have been making for years about Black Lives Matter. You know, they're challenging racist cops. Uh, And so people are saying you're anti-cop. No, they're anti-racist cops. Right. You know, many of these people have cops in their own families or what people are saying about these these athletes who are kneeling. You know, they're kneeling against police brutality. Instead, people are saying, no, you're disrespecting sort of the flag or, or the troops. And so it's a what people what racists have long shrewdly done is they've misrepresented the anti racist argument. You know, anti-racists say, I'm against racial discrimination. They say, no, you're not against racial discrimination. You're against white people. And then they critique their misrepresentation. You know, they said this for abolitionists. You know, abolitionists were like, we're against slavery. So what slaveholders said is, no, you're against Southern rights. You're against property rights. You're against America. Abolitionists were like, no, we're against slavery. And so they misrepresented what they were saying and critiqued their own misrepresentation. Of course, we know segregationists did the same thing. You know, segregationists said, oh, you civil rights activists are against states' rights. <laughs> no, we're actually against Jim Crow segregation. No, you're against states' rights. And, and you know, we have a states' rights based on our Constitution. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they have long done, and they continue to do that today. Racism, racist uh, to this day, is, is, is a powerful label, powerful mm-hmm. phrase, right? And, and so all sides try very hard to to, to to not get labeled that way. Yes. Right? And I've actually found through researching for Stamp in the beginning that I had, I had yet to come across an American who had been willing to identify their ideas as racist. In fact, what's happened 
is every group of, of people who I classify in, the, in stand from the beginning as racist have tried to define their own ideas outside of racism. And so slaveholders did not think their ideas that black people are fit for slavery. They did not think those ideas were, were racist ideas, though they thought that that was God's word or that that was science. Um, and it really every group of racists since then have, have tried to define racism outside of their ideas. And so I, and I think we do that every day. You know, no matter what we say, we then say, well, I'm not a racist, you know, as opposed to saying, well, maybe my idea is racist and I could maybe need to think, start thinking from a more anti-racist standpoint. And I think one of the reasons why I decided to begin the book by saying that I had held racist ideas, you know, is because, again, I realized that nobody was willing to say the obvious. And so I feel like I felt like in order to write this this book on racist ideas that I had to say that first. Hmm. Now, the uh, to the title of your talk here at USU um, was uh, how to be an anti-racist. Right. And you're writing your epilogue, and I want to treat this, and again, we'll, we'll get into the, some of the fascinating history, but um, there are some things you say, if you want to be an anti-racist, that you should not do, should stop using, that, that the anti-racists have tried over the years, and I, I guess you're saying these, these haven't worked, won't work, we should get away from these things. Yeah, so, you know, earlier we spoke about the sort of line of causation as it relates to racism, and we, of course, were taught that really the cradle has been ignorance and hate, and ignorance and hate led to racist ideas, and racist ideas led to racist policies. Well, I show in Stanford the beginning that it's quite the opposite, that racist policies lead to racist ideas, and racist ideas lead to ignorance and hate. And so that different line of causation necessitates a different solution, because if the fundamental problem is ignorance, it makes sense that our fundamental solution should be education. Right. If the fundamental problem is hate, it makes sense that our fundamental solution should be love. But if that is not the fundamental problem um, for the producers. Now, again, for the consumers, it's different, you know, but for the producers, they're not producing these ideas out of ignorance and hate. They're producing these ideas to substantiate racist policies. And so the way that we undermine the production of racist ideas is by undermining the policies themselves. Another way to, to think about it is really racist ideas are almost like the PR arm of, of a company of racist policies. So what are you going to do, like try to shut down the PR arm or are you going to try to shut down the company itself? Once you shut down the company, the PR arm goes down with it. Hmm. You, you talk about uh, uh Three things here, self-sacrifice, uplift, suasion, and educational persuasion. I wonder if you treat each of those uh, very briefly, and then I want to get into some of this history. Sure. So, you know, I think we have been taught, and many groups of Americans have been taught, and particularly white people, that racism has actually been in their self-interest. And so it's certainly the case that when you look at white Americans, generally speaking, they have benefited from white privilege. They have benefited from racist policies. But then when you start looking more specifically at different white groups, when you start looking at the white poor or even the white middle class, you begin, or even the uh, white upper class, you begin to see 
that rich whites have disproportionately benefited from racism. Uh, while to a far to to in, in many ways, particularly we can see this in the last uh, forty years, the white middle class has actually not benefited from racism, and white poor have never benefited from racism. And what I mean by the white middle class has not benefited from racism is we've spoken a lot, I think, in recent years around this country about the growing amounts of economic inequality and, and the growing amounts of economic inequality between the white middle class and, and the top 1%. Well, how did that happen? Uh, who put those policies in place that led to big tax breaks uh, for the rich, that led to all of this, these, this, these uh, state funds going to prisons instead of schools, that led to all of our tax money going to war uh, as opposed to people? Who, who put those? How did those people get elected? What platforms did they run on? Well, they ran on platforms that we're going to eliminate affirmative action. We're going to eliminate welfare. We're going to reduce crime. And who was colored as crime? Who was colored as affirmative action? Who was colored as welfare? Black people. And so they, 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 these politicians manipulated the white middle class into believing that they were going to help them out when, in fact, we're seeing the effects uh, of, of their leadership. Hmm. Um, let's uh, take another break, and we'll come back. I want to, uh, to, to treat each of these five, uh, you call them uh, uh, tour guides, along, okay. along this, uh, <laughs> this, uh, th- this history uh, that you treat in the book. Uh, my guest is Ibram Kendi. He um, is a professor at American University. He's the founding director of the Anti-Racial Research and Policy Center at American University in Washington, D.C. His book, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, won the 2016 National Book Award for Nonfiction. And he was on the USU campus recently to give a presentation brought in by the USU Access and Diversity Center. More following this break. We're back with our last segment with Ibram Kendi, who is a professor of history and international relations, the founding director of the Anti-Racial Research and Policy Center at American University in Washington, D.C., and his book, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, won the 2016 National Book Award for Nonfiction. He was uh, sponsored uh, in a uh, presentation on USU campus recently uh, by the USU Access and uh, Diversity uh, Center. Uh, I understand, uh, before we get into um, each of these five tour guides to take us through the history of racist ideas in America, Dr. Kennedy, that you, I'm reading this in your acknowledgments, that uh, you... set out to write something that was much narrower in scope. <laughs> Tell us what that was. Yeah, and, actually, and then how did it morph into this very ambitious book? Sure. So I actually was going to write a book on the origin of African-American studies and, and the role that students, particularly black students, uh, played in basically proposing and demanding African-American studies courses and departments on college campuses across uh, the United States. And and, and, and at the time when they were making these demands in the late 1960s, what in Stand from the Beginning I call assimilationist ideas were dominant in the academy. Uh, but assimilationists did not consider their ideas to be racist ideas uh, because historically, traditionally, racist ideas have been 
defined as notions of biological sort of racial hierarchy. And since assimilationists did not believe in that, uh, they did not consider their ideas to be racist. Well, these students in the late 60s, students that were inspired by black power and, 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 you know, that movement, you know, that sort of embraced African-American culture, talked about notions of black pride. Well, they took offense to these assimilationist professors saying that African-American culture was pathological pathological, that black people should be assimilating. And in, in taking offense, they called those ideas racist. Um, and that really, when I started studying and seeing that, and, and I started to realize that histories of racist ideas have largely been written by assimilationists themselves, who therefore have left out their own ideas about black cultural or even behavioral inferiority. You know, I realized that a book bringing those ideas back in was needed. And that led to Stamp from the beginning. Hmm. Let's see, so we have about oh, 15 minutes. I uh, want to take a, a, you know, a brief tour. You'll, you'll need to read the book to get the, the, full, <laughs> the full treatment. But uh, you uh, point to five tour guides, Cotton Mather, taking us back to Puritan times, Thomas Jefferson, William Lloyd Garrison, uh, W.E.B. Is it Dubois or Dubois? Either way, either way, yeah. I've, I've heard it pronounced both ways, uh, and then Angela Angela Davis. So let's start with uh, with Cotton Mather. Sure. So you know, first, I, I, the reason why I use these sort of tour guides, who were sort of individuals whose lives and ideas sort of show serve as almost like windows to this larger racial debate between segregationists, assimilationists, and anti-racist ideas is because I wanted to make STEM from the beginning as accessible as possible. And so what, you know, the book really is, is a story, right? Is a narrative, a narrative that runs through these people's lives, but more broadly, this sort of larger life of, of, of racist and anti-racist ideas. And Cotton Mather was really the first great American intellectual uh, who lived from about the 1660s to the 1720s. And he, some of his biographers have claimed that he published more than all of his contemporaries combined. He was the first American-born member of the, 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 the illustrious Royal Society of England. So he was this major sort of American thinker and theologian. So he was a Puritan uh, minister at the, the famed North Church of Boston, which was the most distinguished church uh, in colonial uh, Boston. And he was involved in a debate as to basically whether black people could become Christian. And slave owners and, and other segregationists were like, no, you know, they're too barbaric. They're too permanently barbaric. They could not become Christian. While, while Cotton Mather was like, no, um, you know, though their bodies are black and therefore permanently worthy of enslavement, we have the capacity to make their souls white because for him, Christian souls were white. Um, and it was his goal to make everyone who he was missioning to basically Christian and thereby white, including black people. Hmm. Uh, interesting. So he was, um, I, I guess he was trying to be somewhat of a moderating force in, in, in his time. Precisely. Yeah. You know, and of course, you know, for those who are familiar with Christian theology, he believed deeply in this sort of Pauline division between the body and soul. Right. Um, and he he but he certainly, you know, tried to urge uh, people in Boston and even down the coast to mission to black people. Now, slave owners were like, 
basically, if these people become Christian, then I got to set them free because that was largely the law. Uh, that was largely British common law. So they were against it on practical self, you know, out of practical self-interest and him being, a, you know, a Christian minister who's seeking to to mission to his flock, uh, you know, was 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 trying to, of course, bring in another group of people into the church. Mm-hmm. Let's move to uh, Thomas Jefferson. Of course, uh, you know he, he's he's famously a, a figurehead for the incredible complexity of of, of any conversation on race. Yeah, and so if, if during Cotton Mather's era during colonial America, theological ideas were largely scientific ideas. Theological ideas largely dominated the intellectual sort of environment, and 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 so. That began to change by the early United States and racial ideas like intellectual ideas more broadly became more secular and they became more secular principle, principally as a result of people like Thomas Jefferson, who wasn't much of a Christian for the lack of a you know, better term. And so he was he considered himself an Enlightenment scholar. So he followed the Enlightenment theorist of of, of, of the Western world. And he was, and I sort of show how he was involved in this debate over creation. Uh, basically, are the racial groups, were they separately created? Are black people the descendants of Adam and Eve? And I say descendants of Adam and Eve because it was believed by both sides of the, de- the racist debate that Adam and Eve were white. Uh, so are black people the descendants of Adam and Eve or these black people created separately? And Jefferson in particular could not make a choice. So he seemed to basically be in the middle. He also, of course, was very well known for writing notes on the state of Virginia, which became a very important text specifically in justifying black intellectual inferiority. And it, it led to many sort of abolitionists and anti-racist thinker well into the 19th century referring to that text and arguing against it. Mm-hmm. Um, William Lloyd Garrison, um, he's uh, you know passionate anti-slavery mm-hmm. um, advocate. Yes. Yeah, so Jefferson dies on July 4th, uh, 1926, and that is basically the eve of what we know as the abolitionist movement, that William Lloyd Garrison was one of the principal trailblazers and pioneers of through his work as the editor of The Liberator, which was published out of Boston and was the principal sort of abolitionist uh, periodical. And, and so I, of course, show how he made a very early case for what became known as immediate emancipation. Uh, So he believed that there was no reason to keep black people enslaved. But he also simultaneously believed that slavery was not just dehumanizing. It literally had dehumanized black people. It literally was making black people into brutes. And so he would not only speak out against the horrors of slavery, but say say to white Americans, this horrible institution has made these people into brutes, which is basically saying that these people are inferior. But then he was saying, if we, of course, free them, we can civilize and develop them. And so that idea, of course, became a very dominant assimilationist idea, a racist idea, at the same time that his anti-racist ideas were leading to his challenge of slavery. Hmm. And did you write uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, 
interesting span of his life, 1868 to 1963. <laughs> I, I think, at least I forgot he, he lived that long. Um, you, you say he he started out accepting some of these in, assimilationist ideas, and then he moved in his lifetime. Yeah, so, you know, du, du Bois, really his, his story and, and uh, his section picks up with the fall of Reconstruction, uh, a fall of Reconstruction that, in which he, of course, begins to realize the ways in which sort of the installation of Jim Crow is is horrible. But he's simultaneously saying that black people are inferior because of the horrors of slavery. And so this idea that slavery has made black people into criminals or made or disrupted black families or, you know, made these sort of behavioral, or even cultural traits. He consumed those ideas. Those are very dominant ideas, you know, coming from the abolitionist generation that he consumed. But over the course of his lifetime, uh, he sort of moved away from this sort of double consciousness of, of anti-racist and assimilationist ideas to a more anti-racist consciousness, particularly by the 1930s. And so the book chronicles, of course, his sort of evolution, just as it chronicles the evolution of, of racial ideas in the early 20th century more broadly. Your final tour guide, you've uh, selected Angela Davis. What, why Angela Davis? Well, I think Angela Davis, so she, I think because of her upbringing and because of some of her early experiences, and even because she came of age during the civil rights and black power movements, uh, movements that were circulating anti-racist ideas, she was from a very early age, uh, you know, point in her life was able to really adopt an anti-racist mentality. So, she, you know, uh, a mentality that almost Du Bois handed off to her, uh, an older Du Bois handed off to a younger uh, Angela Davis. And so I chose her because I wanted readers of this book to see an example, you know, of somebody who, for the better part of their lifetime, and who is dealing with many different groups of black people being demonized, whether it's black criminals or uh, single parent uh, mothers, you know, and she consistently was sort of at the forefront of um, sort of defending these people. I wanted people to see what it truly means to think and act, you know, as an anti-racist, to not think that there's anything wrong with with black groups of people or any group of people. Uh, And so that's one of the reasons why I, I chose her. And I think also she primarily throughout her career has been involved in in discussions and debates and activism around criminal justice and 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 and, and so i think you know this more recent awareness of americans to the criminal justice problem you know she's she has been she has been talking speaking out about that for 50 years hmm. so um I- Want to you know take a few minutes here to to sum up, and I wondered uh, personally. You've you talked about one of the effects of diving into this history for you is that you confronted some racist ideas you you had consumed, mm-hmm. and another thing that, that that you I believe suggest for all of us is to for us to take a look at ourselves and mm-hmm. see whether we're harboring unknowingly some racist ideas. Yeah, and and I think I think we have been led to believe that there's a such thing as non-racism. In other words, that there that 
the, the concept that I'm not a racist actually has meaning. When in fact, either we believe in the equality of racial groups or we believe in racial hierarchy. Either we believe that the reason why racial disparities exist in our society is because there's something wrong with groups of people, or we believe that policies, discriminatory policies, are leading to those uh, inequities. And so what we can do for ourselves is realize that, no, there's no sort of middle ground. Either you are an anti-racist or you're a racist. And, and I think for us to come to grips with what it means to think as a racist and what it means to think as an anti-racist. And what anti-racists say is simply the racial groups are equal and that I'm no longer going to justify or rationalize these inequities in our society by saying there's something wrong with, with groups of people. And so if we're doing that, we need to acknowledge our racist ideas, uh, racist ideas that I consistently show and stand from the beginning are simply not true. Either they have been thoroughly and continuously disproven or they have never been proven. And so for us to continuously divide ourselves from other groups of people, from us to continuously demean groups of people, for us to not see what's actually the root cause of these racial problems that we continue to deal with is not only bad for black people, it's bad for us, it's bad for America. Mm. Um, so er, early in the conversation, we talked about, and you have this early in the book, Now I want to maybe have you... Uh, Tell us what you think this this means now. Um, so we began with the election of Donald Trump yeah. following the first African-American president. Um, left many Americans in shock, you write, and, and uh, unable to understand this using either of the two popular narratives, mm-hmm. which is that we're post-racial or we should be post-racial versus uh, the march of racial progress. And then you put forward um, a different narrative, which is, Racial progress always has a, there's a dual uh, force moving alongside it. We have racial progress. We've usually or always had progress for for racism. Yes. Um, So now the present moment looking forward, what is, what do you, what do you think that means for at least, especially for people who want to have, uh, you know, racial progress? Well, Well, I think what it means is that we begin to accept the reality that racial progress is not inevitable and that when we make progress as a society, we have to defend that progress. When we eliminate a, a racial barrier, we have to recognize that the people who benefited from that barrier are going to try to erect new and ever more sophisticated barriers and sort of cover mask those barriers with racist ideas that cause us to not see those barriers. We have to be on guard for that because really we have to realize that this is a struggle. This is a this is really a power struggle. This is a struggle uh, over self-interest. And we have forces in our society who benefit uh, from manipulating millions of people through racist ideas. I mean, we're, for instance, seeing that I think one of the most obvious examples that I think we're dealing with all over the country is voter ID laws. We have voter ID laws popping up. They've been popping up really since 2013 that that basically are suppressing votes, particularly the votes of black people, but even non-black people. And then they're justified on this idea that there's voter fraud. 
And then when thinking Americans uh, who study this say that actually voter fraud is like a non-existent problem. I saw one study that found that voter reports of voter fraud uh, happen as often as reports of alien abduction. Right. But we continue. But then these policies continue to be justified on them. Or in the case of a state like Iowa, the those politicians who justify their voter ID law stated that, well, there's a perception that there's voter fraud. So that's why we're putting this this these laws in place, even though it's because they, they can't they can't deny that the evidence doesn't support it. So they had to create, well, there's this perception. Uh, and then the question becomes, why these voter ID laws? And, and are they really about reducing voter fraud, which we know is not a problem? Or are they about getting or maintaining elections? When, when, when people who are not serious about democracy uh, realize that they don't have the votes, what they have historically done in the United States and across the world is they've tried to suppress votes. That's what they've done. And that's what they're doing in America. And, 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 and they, they're pushing this idea of voter fraud. We're consuming it. We're believing it. We're stepping back, allowing them to suppress our votes. And, 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 and pretty soon we won't have a democracy as a result. Mm. Just a couple of minutes left. Uh, what do you say to just uh, responding to the title of your address here at USU? How to be an anti-racist. What, uh, what, are, what are some of the main points there? Sure. So, you know, what I talked about is that, you know, when I say that the racial groups are, are equal, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily and, and, and anti-racist believe in group equality. You know, I'm not saying that that. There are no lazy black people. There are no criminal-like black people. There are no unintelligent black people. But there are also lazy white people. There are also criminal-like white people. There are also unintelligent white people. And no one has ever proven that there are more lazy black people than, than, than there are lazy white people. They've tried to create uh, sort of standards that skewed it in the favor of, of white people, but those were subjective. They've tried to manipulate statistics, but those were manipulating statistics. Uh, and, and so what this means is that when we see negativity, when we see a black person who is acting negatively, we should individualize that person. We shouldn't say that that black person is acting in a lazy manner because they're black. No, they're acting lazy because of them or because of that hour, because maybe later they may be, you know, more driven to work. But, you know, and so that's one of the ways in which we think as an anti-racist. We individualize negativity. That's what we do with white people. When we see a white person, you know, acting lazy, we don't say white people are lazy. We just say that that person uh, is lazy. But not only that, we, we not only we recognize that the racial groups do not exist biologically. And so there's no biological sort of hard lines between whites and blacks and Asians and, and, and other groups. But then in, in, in addition to that, we recognize that, that there are different cultures and we don't mistake difference for inferiority. You know, we look at difference and say difference can be on the same level. Uh, and, and we don't judge other cultures from our own cultural standards because any culture that judges another culture from their own cultural standards, that culture is going to look to be inferior. Uh, and, and finally, we don't imagine that particular racial groups are behaviorally equal. 
and 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 we we begin to sort of realize that that the racial groups are also behaviorally equal because no one else is proven otherwise. And, and I think we, we think that black people commit more crimes because more black people are in prison or more black people are arrested. Uh, but when in fact, we have all sorts of data that shows that for instance, black people and white people uh, consume drugs at similar rates. White people are more likely to sell drugs. Uh, but why are b- white drug dealers not being arrested and black drug dealers are? Well, because of racial discrimination. We have all sorts of data that connects the violent crime levels and unemployment rates across racial groups, which says that really what's behind violent crime in black neighborhoods is not blackness, but poverty. And and that exists in white neighborhoods and other neighborhoods too. So, you know, for us to stop using racial inferiority to explain phenomenon. And for us to start seeing that policies are the problem and for us to start organizing and challenging those policies. Good place to end it. We're out of time with Ibram Kendi, uh, who is professor of history and international relations and the founding director of the Anti-Racial Research and Policy Center at American University in Washington, D.C. His book, Stamp from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, uh, won the 2016 National Book Award for Nonfiction. And uh, he was on the USU campus recently to give a keynote uh, presentation, How to Be an Anti-Racist. He was uh, sponsored in this USU visit by the USU Access and Diversity Center. Dr. Kendi, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah.